Well, good morning to each of you. It is so good to see everyone that is here. Uh, welcome back, Sam. Good to see you again. I was real surprised. I should have thought you might be coming for Mother's Day, but it didn't cross my mind. And like Fred said this morning, now we go through withdrawal all over again from missing Sam. But welcome to each of you. Uh, it's good for us to be together. And I hope what I share this morning will be encouraging. You know, speaking on Mother's Day is always a bit of a conundrum for a minister. You know, do you, do you bring a Mother's Day message? Do you not? Um, I don't know any relationship, any human relationship that is as emotionally packed as your relationship with your mother. It's been proven over and over and over and over again, uh, whether your mother is still living or not. And so, for some who are really grieving this morning or missing their mother, uh, it's a difficult time to speak to them. For those who are in the throes of motherhood and just looking after little ones and just last thing they need to hear is someone telling them how they might could do it better, that's a difficult time. For those that are <clears throat> battling teenagers and relationships and, and <clears throat> just feeling like are they making a difference or are they not, um, they're not really looking for someone to encourage them as well. For those who are not married yet or would like to be a mother or not a mother, to talk about motherhood is, can be painful too. So what do we do with all of that? Well, this morning I'm going to speak on a subject or a person I've never preached about before. I'm going to talk to us about Eve this morning. Eve, was she a failure or an ally? So this morning, I'm not going to read a lot of passage of Scripture, but if you open your Bible to Genesis chapter 2 and 3, we will make some references to Eve. Because I want us this morning to examine womanhood and motherhood and what it was like for Eve as our first mother. Yes, Eve is your mother, my mother, our mother. And if you're fortunate... To grow up with a mom, you learn a lot from her. Uh, for good or ill, as you watch how she manages life, uh, you often follow suit, whether you are intentional about that or not. And today is Mother's Day, and perhaps today is an appropriate day for us to consider the first woman, Eve, and what we can learn from the first mother of the Bible. Eve, who is named in Genesis 3, verse 20, um, we find she is named Eve, the mother of all living. And so again, I say that Eve is my mother. Eve is your mother. Eve is our mother. And although this morning all of us would very quickly question the wisdom of trusting in Eve's guidance because of the decision she made that fateful day to disobey God, we would do well to ask ourselves this morning on this Mother's Day, what can Eve still teach us? Yes, you women, but us men as well. What can Eve still teach us about how to live well for the kingdom of God? Eve is only mentioned five times in Scripture, four times in Genesis, and then thousands of years later, Paul makes reference to her in Timothy when he writes that Eve was the one who was deceived. 
But there are four specific scenes in Genesis she's mentioned. She's mentioned at her creation and naming. She's mentioned when she gave, with her sin, of course. She's mentioned when she gave birth to Cain and Abel. And then she's mentioned by name when she gave birth to Seth. Now, our understanding of Eve and her story has grown over time, and perhaps it's grown more by tradition and speculation than by scriptural truth. In fact, earlier interpreters and commentators on the Hebrew Bible really painted Eve as uh, defective, as a secondary part of creation, as the one who's responsible for all of the sin and the strife and the suffering. But the Bible does not present her as defective or miscreated. She's not portrayed as a Jezebel or a Rahab or someone who is tragically lost like Satan from God's mercy and grace. So this morning, on this Mother's Day, I want to lead you in taking a fresh look at Eve, our first mother. And consider this morning that her legacy is not just about sin, but her legacy is also the beginning of our redemption. Eve's life began as a celebration, a grand event that was heralded by Adam, the first man of the Bible, and with the first words that we find recorded in Scripture from human people, or humans, Adam declares, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That's the first place in Scripture we have a female pronoun, she. It's interesting, God created Eve from Adam's rib, and then the Scripture says that he brought Eve to Adam. He brought Eve to Adam, okay? Uh, if you notice in chapter 2, verse 22, And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And then Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. I find it interesting that Adam didn't say, Oh, here's another man. <laughs> hey, bud. He recognized. He knew. Remember, Adam had just named all the animals. And among them, he noticed there was a male and there was a female. And he said, who's for me? He calls her she. He doesn't call her he. And he names her woman. Now, Adam was not responsible for designing her. He was not responsible for creating her. He merely provided some raw material. Nevertheless, Adam received her as himself, and he declared to an audience of one, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He acknowledged that she belonged to him. And then he announces that foundational truth in verse 24 of chapter 2. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. In that one verse, we find three wonderful words that I'm sure Adam didn't even fully understand. We find father and mother and wife. We understand the terms wife and mother, but I think sometimes we misinterpret 
the term helper or a help meet for him, the Hebrew word ezer. You see, rather than a servant for Adam, God provided an ally. He provided one who could share the responsibility to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the other things God had created. Now, you and I can only imagine what Adam and Eve's first days were like in the yard, in the garden. Dressing and keeping it. Chapter 2, verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. What was that like? Their role obviously was an active one, not a passive one. They weren't just tourists on vacation. They had responsibility. And together they shared the responsibility to collaborate, to problem solve, to promote the growth and development of the garden. Together they had the freedom to enjoy God's provision and their relationship one with another and with the God who created them, not encumbered with the knowledge of good nor evil. For God had placed that knowledge off limits for them. Except we do know this. They chose not to follow God's provision. And Eve became the first spiritual tragedy. Followed by Adam, her husband, her leader, her protector, her defender, in short order. Now, we do not know how much time elapsed from Adam and Eve's creation until their rebellion. But in the scriptural narrative, it wasn't long. The story of Eve's disobedience in Genesis 3 provides much opportunity for mental exploration of many possibilities. You know, and I won't take time this morning to read that, you're well familiar with her intercourse or discourse with Satan. Her version of God's command is more stringent than what God had given to Adam, including, she says, a warning to not even touch the tree. Now, we often use Paul's statement of Eve's being deceived as an, an indictment, again, maybe her gullibility. But perhaps Eve's case may show that women ought to be taught carefully rather than pushed away from receiving knowledge. Women tend to be more cautious, right? Not as daring. Maybe that's why she told Satan, we, we can't even touch it. I don't know. Or maybe, is it possible that Adam had exaggerated when telling Eve about the command of God? Or was Eve merely trying to play it safe by adding the restriction? We can't touch it. We don't know that. But in any event, the serpent succeeded in convincing Eve that God's command could not be trusted. To be loving for her ultimate protection and for her ultimate well-being. Rather, Eve listened and she acquiesced to Satan's claim that God was holding out on her by preventing her to access the knowledge of good and evil. That having that knowledge would lead to a deification. She would become like God rather than 
the consequence of death. Well, herein lies the problem. You see, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represented the pursuit of knowledge apart from God. Adam and Eve already had access to God. And the one who would teach them right and wrong as they walked with him in the garden, eating from the forbidden tree, provided them an opportunity to gain knowledge outside of that relationship. To become arbiters of their own truth. Last Sunday we talked about pluralism. Truth being what you decide it is. Does that sound familiar? You see, notice after that fateful decision to disobey God, God seeks out those disobedient people that He created. He wouldn't have had to do that. He could have just scrapped the whole project and started over. But He doesn't. First, He addressed Adam. Now, listen, fellas, don't miss that. Don't miss that. Eve sinned first. But Adam, or God, addressed Adam first. Because he was the one who had received the commandment. And he was the one, therefore, that carried the greater responsibility. Next, God addressed Eve directly. Don't miss that, ladies. You see, it's worth noting that God does not hold Adam accountable for Eve's sin. She possesses her own dignity. She possesses her own accountability. She is a moral agent as much as Adam. But God's question to Eve gives her an opportunity to confess. And she did. She said, verse 13 of chapter 3, she says, The serpent deceived me and I ate. In fact, some commentators suggest that Eve's response to God's questioning was far better than Adam's. When Adam was asked, he passes, points the blame to God. This, this woman that you gave me. I mean, she's defective. She tempted me. Eve doesn't do that. You see, it's also easy for us to finger Eve for their human predicament, the path of sin that we all have chosen. And, and I think I have done that somewhat in the past. You know, the Bible story books, the pictures I've seen, the stories. The, my view of Eve has been that way. But Eve instead correctly identifies the serpent, the tempter, and herself as the one who made the choice. In response to Adam and Eve, God cursed the serpent, relegating him to the lowliest position. And he also pronounced the hardships that would come upon Adam and upon Eve as a result of their sin. But at this point we hear a clear note of hope. In the midst of all of this bad news, there's a clear note of hope. A hope that's not just for Adam and Eve on that day, but for all people who would ever 
inhabit the earth. For every day, from that day to the beginning of eternity. This pronouncement of hope is introduced through Eve. God promises Eve that the woman will bear a child who will bruise the serpent's head even while the serpent strikes the heel of the deliverer. God pronounces that hope of redemption to the woman. Not to Adam. To the woman. The one that we would be so tempted to cast aside. God pronounces that through her. The enmity that arises between Eve and the serpent is a good sign. Eve and her seed have the opportunity to bring creation once again into submission to the will of God. And Eve clearly and unequivocally made the wrong choice in the garden. With her husband's full knowledge, with his presence, and with his participation with her. Eve meant to disobey. She thought she had found a more reliable source of wisdom. And though they don't experience physical death immediately, Adam and Eve's relationship was fractured at every level. They hide from God. They blame each other. They're exiled from their home in the beautiful garden. Eve knew she had been deceived. And for these reasons, we often don't think of Eve as a hero of faith. Her reputation as rebellious is well earned. We've been living with the consequence of her sin ever since. Might we even today resent her? Yet, as with every Bible character and individual today, Eve's moment of failure does not need to ultimately define her. That's one of the first messages I tried to get through to inmates that I work with in counsel. Once they acknowledge what has happened, what they have done, and they feel like such an utter failure, some of them are suicidal. And I try to help them understand that throughout the history of mankind, our past does not need to define our future. Instead, we find tremendous encouragement in her story. God's response to her sinful decision opened the pathway for you and me to enter the kingdom of God. Let me say that again. God's response to Eve's moral failure, his response opened the pathway for you and me to enter the kingdom of God. As I said, he could have scrapped creation. He could have started all over, but that's not what God did. Instead, God announced a solution for the unraveling of his plan for creation. And where would that solution come from? Through Eve's offspring. Now, by the end of the story, rather than the source of the evil predicament of mankind, 
God presents Eve as the source of the solution. Your offspring. Your offspring. Her childbearing, difficult and painful as it would be, would result in the restoration of all that went bad in the garden. In this sense, Eve would be the vehicle of salvation. Both Adam and Eve were made in God's image, and they both were appointed to rule creation on God's behalf. In Genesis 1, 26 to 28, God said, Let us make man our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created him. Male and female created he them. Together they were tasked to fill the earth and subdue it. Eve's failure to subdue the serpent and Adam's failure to support her in this essential task led to their undoing. Realigning herself with God's purposes put Eve at odds with God's enemies. Do you understand that? Eve left God's alignment, joined, as it were, with the serpent and sinned. But when she accepted God's purpose and realigned herself with God's purpose, it then put her at odds again with the enemies of God. That is exactly where she needed to be. And that's exactly where every woman needs to be today. And so my encouragement for you mothers today, for you ladies today, for you women today, is to follow your mother in being at odds with Satan. Being at odds with everything in his agenda. That's the way Eve then aligned herself. And that's what we can learn from her. Perhaps God's declaration of enmity between Eve and the serpent and the prediction that her seed would defeat the serpent, maybe that was what inspired Adam to name her Eve. Because it's only after this that he names her. After he hears what God says, then... In verse 20 of chapter 3, he says, Her name is Eve, the mother of all living. Not dead, living. You see, God mercifully then clothed the two humans before sending them away out of the beautiful garden, which prevented them access to the tree of life. They had already accessed the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil but they were sent away to prevent them from accessing the tree of life. You see, eternal life would come eventually. But what, happened to have, what needed to happen first? The snake's head needed to be crushed. Outside Eden, Eden, we encounter Eve for the third recorded time. We witness Eve's joy in chapter 4, verse 1, at the birth of her first son. And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain. And she said, what? I have gotten a man from the Lord. 
And I'm certain, there's no question in my mind, that she thought, this is the one. This is the one that's going to crush the head of the serpent. I have, I have created a man like God created a man. Look, from my body. Now, God is going to do what he said he's going to do through my offspring. She exclaimed, I've gotten a man from the Lord. The New English translation, I like that translation, says, I have created a man just as the Lord did. Now, the Hebrew word for created sounds a lot like Cain. I'm not Hebrew, but it's much like that. It's kind of an appropriate wordplay for the first uh, birth in the Bible. And Eve, notice, rightfully recognized the miracle of childbirth. She says, from the Lord. Would this be the son? Would Cain be the one? Well, we know Cain was not, nor was her second son, Abel. Rather than crushing the head of the serpent, Cain cooperated with sin by murdering his own brother. Now, the scriptural text doesn't tell us how Eve reacted or whether she was able to hold on to her hope in God's promise in spite of the loss of both of her sons now, one to death and one to exile. It's easy for us, and I'm, I'm sure as you mothers here, to imagine that she carried that grief with her to her grave. But in chapter 4, verse 25, we encounter her name the fourth time and final time during her lifetime when she gave birth to another son who she promptly declared is God's replacement to Abel, Seth. And, and we don't read anything of Seth's life. We don't read of his conflict with the serpent. But we do find Luke recording God, Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Seth. For the remainder of the Old Testament, God's people waited for the descendant of Eve who would crush the head of the serpent. They waited and they waited and they waited. And we find echoes of God's promise in the garden reverberating throughout the Old Testament history of man. Scriptures often speak of the enemies of God. You find that in the Psalms as, as serpents or snakes or deceivers. And it's worth noting as we read the Old Testament that the Scriptures are not always referring to literal snakes when it makes that reference. You see, only men and women who align themselves like Eve with the purposes of God are considered to be the seed of the woman, while those who oppose God's rule are referred to as the seed of the serpent. The proclamation of the gospel in, in, in issues an invitation for men and women even today to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ. He is the seat of the woman. He is the one who defeated Satan once and for all. And made it possible by his death, his burial, and his resurrection. By faith, those who submit to his lordship are reckoned to be children of God. Regardless of their ethnicity, their gender, or social status. Well, when we return to the beginning, 
as I mentioned, I find it striking that God announced his promise of redemption to Eve, not Adam. The mother of all living is the one through whom the promised seed will come eventually. You see, Eve becomes God's ally in the plan of redemption. Yes, Eve was partially responsible for the rebellion in the garden, but her failure alongside that of her husband, who was with her, was not the final word. The Bible presents Eve as, as both a paradigm of God's work of redemption and a complex person with a tragic story. But this morning I want to remind you, Eve is family. Eve is my mother. Eve is your mother. Eve is our mother. She's our mother not only in ancestry, but she is our mother in hope. As flawed a human as Eve was, God elevated her to the honorable position as an enemy of the serpent and the progenitor of the coming Messiah. So where does that leave us on Mother's Day as Eve's descendants? How does the commandment to honor thy father and mother in Exodus 20 verse 12 how does that apply to our reflection on the mother of all living? Whose choice has resulted in a world of physical pain and spiritual pain. Well, our duty today is not to try to erase or gloss over the sin that Eve committed and confessed to God. Nor is it necessarily to honor Eve with imitation. Although cultivating a garden and being a mother are, are generally things that women kind of enjoy doing. Having a garden and flowers and being a mother. But the best way for each of us this morning, whether we're male or female, to honor Eve is to maintain hostility toward anything that sets itself in opposition to God. You see, we learn from Eve to cultivate wisdom grounded in what God says, not from other sources. We celebrate the seed of Eve, our Messiah, Jesus the Christ, who crushed the serpent. And we announce the redemption that is available to all people everywhere. When they leave the garden, Eve is Adam's last and only hope for reversing the course on creation. The sin of Eve did not erase the possibility of future women's participation in redemption. Rather, generations later, we find even Mary's submission to God's plan for her to bear the Messiah signaled the soon arrival of the one that Eve so desperately was looking for. 
The one who would bruise for our sake, the serpent said. The one who would conquer sin and death. The one who will one day crush him once and for all. Well, in conclusion this morning, what can Eve still teach us about how to live well in the kingdom of God? There are many. I just jotted down a few. First of all, I think we can learn and accept and embrace that we are created to bring honor to the purposes of God. We have a purpose in being here. We are not here by accident. Secondly, our moments of failure, whether as mothers or as fathers or as sons or daughters, our moments of failure do not need to ultimately define us. But it is crucial that like Eve, when God confronted her, we acknowledge our failure and we repent of it. Third thing we can learn. We can learn to accept God's plan of redemption. God's plan of reconciliation. When we find ourselves in difficult places because of sin, whether it's our failure or another person's failure, God always has a plan to redeem that situation. God always has a plan to reconcile that conflict. What we are called to do is accept that plan. Embrace that plan. Even when we would rather embark on our own plan. Fourthly, we need to embrace the changing roles God has for us and fulfill the responsibilities of the moment. The role that God has for you, whether you are six today or I don't know how the oldest age would be, God has a role for each of us this morning. Not just you women, but we men as well. And depending on your age and station in life, that role is different. But, but you, we are called to embrace today the role that God has for us. In our youth, we're called to develop that relationship with God and to submit to our parents and to build loving relationships with siblings and with friends. As young adults, our role takes a new dimension, finding ministry. When we're a child, it's about us, right? What am I going to do tomorrow? Where am I going to sleep to? Tonight, what am I going to eat tomorrow? As we get into young adults, it needs to shift. Yes, we're responsible for us, but we're then also responsible to minister to other people. What is the ministry that God would have? And you young adults, I rejoice in ways I've seen the young adults in our church explore those possibilities. Finding that ministry. For some, it may mean marriage. 
But then as we move on as young adults, we have a responsibility to those who are following us. Maybe it's your own children. Maybe it's the children next door. Maybe it's nieces and nephews. Maybe it's other young people in your church, in your community. We then have a role and responsibility backwards to them, as well as to minister to peers. As we hit midlife, we're called to invest, invest, invest in others, in the work of the kingdom. Give of ourselves, not laying up treasure here on earth, but laying up treasure in heaven. And then as we hit those elder years, yeah, I've been called elderly. It's the responsibility we have in an increasing way to mentor, to encourage, to support those who have, are walking where we once walked in heavy roles and responsibilities. And it is so natural for us to be reluctant to make change in roles. You know, for some of us, if we could be an eight-year-old kid, we just would have stayed there. I mean, yeah, I don't care in the world, right? And then some of us would just like to stay a teenager all our life. I mean, didn't we just stay 15? And then for some of us, maybe it's 21. If I could just stay 21. And then if I could just be a young family. Or then maybe if I could just be, I just loved when we, were te- we had teenage kids. And then I just love being a grandparent. If I just, just could stay here with little grandkids. Life moves. And as life changes for you and for me, God has other roles he expects us to not reluctantly fulfill, but embrace. And be faithful in those responsibilities and roles until he ushers new ones. That's an encouragement we can receive from Eve. Well, the last one. I know Eve had to wrestle with this. Trust God when people bring disappointment to your life. When Cain was born, Eve thought Cain was the one. And when Cain killed Abel, Eve must have been tempted, I'm sure, to question whether God's plan was ever going to happen. Because he promised her, through your offspring, the serpent will be crushed. And Cain disappointed her. What do we do when people disappoint us? Can we maintain our trust and confidence in God and his plan? That we can learn from Eve. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice this morning in your grace and your mercy toward our mother Eve. Thank you, Father, even in her failure, you chose out of your love to use her as an ally to bring about the plan of redemption. Father, we look back now and we marvel 
at how that happened. Only you, a God of mercy and grace, could redeem her life in such a meaningful way. And Father, only you can redeem our lives from the failures that we experience. So today, Father, we rejoice that your love for us is eternal, that your grace is abundant, that your mercy is everlasting. And Father, may we choose today to be an ally in the purposes of your kingdom. In Christ's name we pray.